We're going to study going through the book of Titus this fall. If you're just joining us, uh, welcome. We um, uh, Just to catch you up, Titus is a young pastor who is on the island of Crete. He's been left there by the Apostle Paul to build up and to mature fledgling churches who are able to survive and thrive amidst an infamously pagan culture of Crete. You may recall, if you were he- if you were here in recent weeks, we did take a week off last week for our annual missions emphasis weekend. It was a, an encouraging break. But today we come here to chapter 2 of Titus, and I hope you have a Bible open and before you, to verses 11 to 15. Uh, early, in the earlier part of this chapter, Paul addressed five groups in the church, five different groups, explaining to them how how for the sake of the gospel, their lives should be a stark contrast to the Cretan culture that surrounded them. And their lives should also be in stark contrast to the false teachers, the phony Christians who are giving the name of Jesus Christ a bad name. The Bible, you see, is concerned with us having right belief, that's right, that's called orthodoxy, right belief. It's also concerned with us having orthopraxy, which is right living, right practice. Both are important for us as believers. God's truth, when it is truly received and internalized, it produces Godly people. I can be kind of confident that in a a group this size this morning that some among us are struggling with this very issue of godly living. Now, if we look around, you probably can't see it in the people who are around you. But there are folks here who aren't living godly lives. Now, most of us are pretty good about cleaning up on the outside. And so we get some nice clothes, we fix our hair, we brush our teeth, we walk in the doors of the church and we put on our best smile. And when we sing the songs, we put on our best I love Jesus face. But if we later ask your husband, or we ask your wife, or we talk to your kids, or we go to your neighbors, or we go to your co-workers, or we go to your, the students in your class, we might find that we get a whole different picture of who you are than what we see on Sunday morning. Maybe, maybe nobody else knows. Maybe you put on a good face everywhere, but you know when you look in the mirror, the person looking back at you, is not a godly person. Now, first of all, godly doesn't mean perfect. Nobody, none among us is perfect. Godly also doesn't mean that we wear frumpy clothes and we go around with a look on our face like we suck on lemons and we have no fun. That's not what godly is either. Godly simply means this. We live a life that is God-centered. 
We live a life where God is in the focus of all that we do, all that we think, all that we say. God is at the center. Godlessness, which it talks about here as well in this passage, doesn't mean that a person is the most vile, corrupt sinner you can imagine. A godless person may be a very nice person. They may be a very moral person, but they have no place for God in their life. They live life as if God is not there. That is a godless person. Perhaps this morning you want to live a godly life, but you find yourself struggling to actually do it. Or maybe this morning you really aren't sure if you really want to live godly at all. You're on the fence. You maybe put up a show, but you're really not sure that you want to be godly at all. This passage here, as we come to verse 11 of chapter 2, it's really all about these two issues. About why we should live godly and how we do it. You'll notice the first, and actually we read verses 11 through 14 earlier in our scripture reading. We read it together. You'll notice the first word there in verse 11 is the word for. Whenever you see that word for, that little word, it has, it's an important word. And what it does here is it connects what follows with what came before. What came before was the passage we looked at the last two times in this study. Those five different groups as the Apostle Paul explains to them how they should live godly lives. And what follows here in these next verses is more explanation, more rationale for why you should and why you should want to live a godly life. And more understanding about how it is that we become holy Godly people. How is it that we become more godly? Do we just need to try harder? Do we need to work at it more? Well, let's see what it... I want to read it again. And you follow along as I read. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all humility, let no one disregard you. Titus, these are such important things, that last verse. He says, these are such important things. You need to declare these. You need to exhort and you need to rebuke with all authority. This is important stuff. You need to speak up. You need to preach this. And don't let people neglect you. Don't let them disregard. Don't let them say this is no big deal. This is. We need to live godly lives. First thing, I just want to notice a couple of things that he says here that might surprise us. The first is the grace of God trains us to godliness. Two words there. First, grace. 
And it is the key concept in this passage. Rob conveniently chose all the songs for this morning about grace. He did it partly because of this of this message and partly because it's the anniversary of the, the beginning of the Reformation which focused on the grace of God. But grace is the key thing in this passage. It's God's grace, he says, that moves us to be holy, godly people. And for many of us, that is a radical thought. Because for, for most of us, or many of us at least, our thought is the reason that we are supposed to be holy and godly people is because God is there with His, you know, His ruler to slap our knuckles. <laughs> He's there ready to punish us. It's the authority of God that calls us to be holy and godly. It's the sternness of God that calls us to be holy and godly. It's the law of God that calls us to be holy and godly. fear of God. It's, it's His anger. But that's not it. Nor is it His desire to destroy our joy. Some of us think that God's whole business is to look down and see who's having fun like the lifeguard at the pool. You know, out of the pool! You know, Stop having fun! God isn't out to destroy our joy or ruin our fun. What moves us, what calls us to be holy, godly people is His grace. Isn't that amazing? Grace is, means favor. It means kindness. It means care. It's God's grace that calls us to be holy. Why does God desire for you and me to be holy and godly people? Simply because He cares about us. He's kind. He wants what's good for us. You see, godliness is not a is a blessing. It's not a curse. It's good for us. Godliness is a gain. It is not a loss. We usually think about when we think about being godly, about being holy, we think about everything we give up, but the focus is on what we receive. Grace is the key thing here as He calls us to holiness. second thing I notice here, a second big word in that is training. Becoming godly is a growth process. It is not something that is an instantaneous event. You don't just say right here, say, you know what? I want to be godly. God, make me godly. And then there's a lightning bolt from the sky. Boom! And there you are. You're godly. No, he says, it's God's grace that trains us. What that also means is that it's not natural to us. Have you noticed that? If it were natural, it wouldn't require training. Hmm. It also means it's not easy. It requires deliberate action. He calls us here to renounce godlessness and worldly passion and to live, to choose to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now with that, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at five other words that are here. Five key words, each of which will help us to see and to understand some aspect of 
of God's grace that moves us, that calls us, that motivates us to godliness. Five key words. The first I find in verse 11, and it's that God's grace shines. And if you look very carefully at verse 11, you will notice the word shine is not there. Interesting. It says it, though. It is there. It's just not there in any of your English translations. It says, For the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared is from the, is from the Greek word epiphaneo, which none of us speak Greek, so we don't care what the Greek word is, but here's it's from that word that we get this word that you have heard. Epiphany. Except that most of us don't know what epiphany means either. But we've heard it this way. He had an epiphany. You know what it means? He saw the light. I saw the light. That's an epiphany. That's what this word means. The grace of God has appeared. It has shown forth. The grace of God shines. What he's talking about is when Jesus came. It's that we get it in the verses we're very familiar with from the Christmas story. The people living in darkness, Matthew chapter 4, quoting from Isaiah 9. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. When Jesus came to earth, the glorious light of God's grace burst into the darkness of a sinful and fallen world. John 1, verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, when the light of Jesus showed up on planet earth. In Jesus, what we saw is the glory and the beauty and the grace of God. It was fleshed out when He took on flesh. We could see it. And all of us who, who haven't, didn't see Him, we didn't walk and talk with Jesus when He was on planet earth, we see it through the eyes of the disciples who recorded for us the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And as we read the Gospels, we can see the beauty and the glory of the grace of God in the life of Jesus. Have you ever noticed how many millions of unbelievers out there who don't believe in Christ as, as Savior, they don't follow Him as Lord, and yet they say of Jesus, He was a beautiful man. It's the beauty and the grace of God shining through Jesus. It's unmistakable. What does that mean to us? Well, if you call yourself a Christian, and I assume that most of you here this morning do, a Christian, a Christ follower is its basic definition. The definition of that would mean that we should follow, therefore, His example. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as He did. In other words, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you have 
no interest, no desire to live godly? When Jesus reflected and shone out the glory and the grace of God, if you have no desire to be godly, you are also not being a Christian, a Christ follower. It goes hand in hand. Why should you live godly? Because Jesus was godly. And as a Christian, I want to follow Him. His humility moves us to break down our pride. His unselfish love moves us to love our brother. His forgiveness calls for us to extend grace to other people rather than clinging to anger and bitterness. And we can go on and on and on. The example He set of the grace of God that should become the graces that we exhibit as well as God-like people, godly people. God's grace shines. Secondly, in verse 11, continuing, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace brings salvation. God's grace saves By the way, just to clarify, when you read that phrase, it can sound like bringing salvation for all people might sound like everybody gets saved. Universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. Everybody, it's popular nowadays. Everybody gets a trophy. (laughs) That's not what the Scripture teaches. Everyone will arise from the dust, Daniel says, some to everlasting glory in heaven, others to everlasting contempt in hell. The Bible does not teach that all are saved, and that's not what this verse is teaching. What it is saying is simply that all people who are saved are saved the same way through God's grace through Jesus Christ. He's been talking, you recall earlier in this chapter, to five different groups of people. The same grace of God brings salvation to all of those groups, all people. All who are saved are saved by God's grace. Two things I want to note about God's grace in salvation. The first is that that word salvation is a rather strong word. When you think about it, it's kind of a radical word. What it implies is that you are in a desperate and a hopeless situation. See, if you're not desperate, if you're not dying, you don't need to be saved. You just need a little help. If you've got a flat tire by the side of the road, you need help, not saving. Unless there's an unusual situation. There's a tornado bearing down on you while you're stuck there with your flat tire by the side of the road. You're in a desperate, hopeless situation and you need saving. You see, it's a difference. So many folks think what we need is we need help. But the Bible says we need saving. We have a great need. We were helplessly lost in sin, the Bible says. The Bible says that we were dead in our transgressions and sin. We didn't need help, we need resurrection. Grace also means Not only that grace not only speaks of God's kindness and His care and His goodness, grace also speaks of the fact that it's undeserved. 
we don't deserve it. Grace is, is, is often said is getting the good that we don't deserve. And the reality is not only were we in a desperate situation, we were thoroughly undeserving. There is nothing, not one thing in you and me that deserved rescue. Last night, I walked into my bathroom, I looked down in the tub, there was a spider. If your house is like mine, you find spiders everywhere this time of year. They're coming in from outside. And I did what I've done a hundred times or a bunch of times, I don't know how many, a bunch of times in the last couple of weeks, and it's killed a spider. I didn't even think about it until after I'd killed it and I thought again, you know what, I've killed all these spiders and I smile. And that spider is bigger in my world than I am in God's universe. That spider has more significance to me than we should in God's universe. If you just look at the sheer enormity and the sheer, you know, how small we are and how insignificant we are, we are significant to God, but not because we have intrinsically any worth in ourselves. We have significance to God because He has placed value upon us. He has placed worth on us. And you see, we had a great need and we had no reason for God to save us. We had no worth. But He chose to save us. And that's what makes the next thing so amazing is because of what it took to save us. Down in verse 14, we find the cost of our salvation who gave Himself for us, for in our place, for us. Who did that? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think of that. The great God and Savior became man in order to die in your place, in order to die in my place, to rescue us. Why? He says He loved me. And He loved you. Isn't that amazing? That's grace. God's grace saves us from our great need at a great cost. And the more that you and I understand that, the more we grasp that, the more we consider that and contemplate that and meditate on that, the more we will understand the seriousness and the severity of sin. Sin is so serious, it took the death of God who became man to fix it, to remedy it. And the result of that will be when we really grasp that is we will grow to abhor sin more and more and we will more and more cling to and love the grace of God. And that will begin to reform us and remake us. We won't have to be told to stop sinning. We will not want to sin as we grasp that. It moves on. God's grace, verse 13, it gives blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, 
You might want to circle it or mark that verse in your Bible if you're ever looking for verses that really show for sure that Jesus Christ is God. Because I've heard people say the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus is God. Oh, yes, it does, through and through. Here's one of them. Notice it says that the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the great God. Very clear verse on the deity of Christ, but that was a freebie. By God's grace here, Jesus is coming back. God's grace gives us hope. How many of you occasionally at least get sick and tired of the mess this world is? How many of you are sick and tired of being sick and tired? Your body is sick. Your body gets tired. You just get frustrated. You're just like, I'm so done with this. Been there? Yeah. Guess what? Life in this world, in this, as it says, present age, can be really hard. But there's hope. There's good news. Jesus Christ is coming back. And when He comes back, He's going to, first, He's going to bring rescue good news. He's coming back. He's going to right every wrong. Good stuff. Secondly, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be reunion. I use that word even though we're going to have reunion with Jesus even though we've never met Him. (laughs) The One whom we have not seen and yet Scripture says we love. The one we've been getting to know more and more day by day, week by week, year by year. We're finally going to see Him face to face. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, now it's like looking through a mirror dimly. And you feel that way sometimes, don't you? When you, you try to, when you try to relate with Christ, sometimes it feels difficult and you, and, and you just, you, 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 know, you want more because you only see a little bit. Says now it's dimly, but one day it's going to be face to face. Not only that, but with that reunion, and, and I should say, as we grow more and more to love Him, it builds in us anticipation. We we want to see Him. You know, we've had a number of our of our ladies here uh, who've had husbands who've been deployed. And I tell you, there's a big anticipation waiting for them to come home. So it should be with us as we wait for Christ. There's an anticipation. It should motivate us to live holy lives so that when He does come back, He's going to be pleased with us. I read a while back that when Jimmy Carter was president, that sometimes when he traveled, he did something that no other president that I know of has done. And that is, he stayed in the homes of some average Americans. Can you just imagine? This afternoon, you go home from church, and uh, just as you're wrapping up dinner, there's a phone call. On the other end is the secretary for the President of the United States. The President's going to be in St. Louis in November. He would like to come stay in your home over Thanksgiving. I wonder if anything would change in your life in the next three weeks. 
I have a feeling that we'd be going through just ripping, you know, ripping wallpaper off walls and remodeling our house. We'd be cleaning things that have never been cleaned before. We'd be getting new furniture, new decorations, right? Because after all, if he comes, there's going to be photographers and your kitchen is going to end up on the, you know, in the newspapers and online and somebody a lot more important than the President of the United States is going to come to our home one day when Jesus Christ returns. Jesus said this, you may recall, Matthew chapter 24, He said, so you must also be ready for the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Jesus Christ is coming back. We need to be ready. One more thing about His return, and that's this, that when He comes, we will share in His glory. We will finally realize and receive all the promised blessings of salvation, of eternal life, of eternal joy and rewards. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, He called you to this through our Gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've known most of you for quite a while. You know what? I don't really see a lot of glorious people out there. Nice people, people I love, but you're not really glorious. I'm not either, and I get less glorious every day. And <laughs> But isn't that fantastic? The God of glory, when Jesus returns, says, you're going to share in His glory. You're going to shine. Notice what else he says, though. In Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says this. Last book of the Bible, last few verses, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Why should we live godly? Because as the old hymn said it so well, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. He brings reward with him. So much there. We've got to hurry. There's a couple more words we need to say. God's grace, verse 14, God's grace redeems. You know, redeem is not a word that really rocks your world. It doesn't rock mine very much. It really is not a word I'm familiar with. But the, the folks reading this, you recall two weeks ago when we were in the passage just before this, it was written to slaves. When they heard this word, it meant something. There were a lot of slaves in these churches on this island. See, when they heard the word redeem, what they know, the word redeems means to buy something out of bondage. There are stories of some folks back in this time. We've talked about how common slavery was. But there were some folks who would go and buy a slave, buy a slave from the auction block or buy a slave from a master they would buy the slave and set them free. That happened in American history too. In that dark days of slavery here in our country, there were some folks who would buy slaves just to set them free. You know, I bet that was the dream of every slave. That someday some wealthy person will walk into my life and buy me out of slavery and set me free. And you know, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. See, 
we have a tendency to minimize our favorite sins. They're no big deal. It's just a little sin. Now, murder, that's bad. Theft, bad stuff. Bank robbery, bad stuff. Drug pushing, bad stuff. Those sins out there that those people do, those are bad sins. But my sins, come on, just a little harmless, you know, a little gossip, you know, what's the big deal? A little white lie, little, you know, little envy, little covetousness. It's not a big deal. You, you ever do that? You don't have to shake your head because I know you do. Okay? And I don't want you to lie in church. We all do it. This word redeems reminds us that there is no such thing as insignificant little sin. Sin is fun for a little while. The Bible doesn't, doesn't deny that. It recognizes that. You might recall this Hebrews chapter 11 talking about Moses as a young guy. It said he chose to be mistreated along with the people, uh, with the people of God rather than, here's the phrase, to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Sin has pleasures for a short time, but sin comes with a big price tag and it's always bad. What the Bible tells us is that sin is addictive and sin becomes slavery and sin is deadly. Romans 6 has a lot to say about it. Verse 17 in Romans 6, it says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've been set free from sin. Become slaves to righteousness. You've been set free by trusting in Christ. You've been set free from slavery to sin. But it also reminds us back in the verse before, in verse 16, that to willfully sin is to place ourselves back under the mastery of sin, is to go right back into slavery. It says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave, you're slaves to the one that you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, to the slave who's reading this, they understand what redemption is. And they've connected the dots that redemption, redeeming you and me, rescuing us from slavery to sin, cost the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Sin is no trivial thing. And sin is slavery. And why would I ever go back into slavery? Such a foolish thing to do, and yet I would say most of us have been there. Maybe you're there today. You tell yourself, I've got it under control. My sin is no big deal. I just do these little sins and they're not a big deal. And yet, exactly that, you've deceived yourself. Sin has you under its control. God has redeemed us from sin through Jesus. And the more we grasp the reality of that truth, by God's grace, the more motivated we are to cling to Jesus and stay away from sin. See how God's grace makes us more godly. One last one. Verse 14. He has redeemed us from slavery to lawlessness. Redeemed us from lawlessness. And here it is, verse 14. To purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. 
God's grace purifies us. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a generation and in a culture that is obsessed, obsessed with trying to make this look good. Right? Billions of dollars in cosmetics, in diets, in workouts, cosmetic surgeries, right? All to make this look good. And I hate to tell you, but it's a losing battle. Now, I appreciate that we all do our best to look good, okay? And that's not a bad thing, but understand that this thing breaks down and wears down, this thing that the Apostle Paul called our earthly tent, it breaks down and wears down and gets frayed and tattered till one day we pack it up and we leave the tent. We die. Our spirit goes to be with Christ and the body goes to the grave. What he says here is that God's grace is in the business of beautifying us, but not the body. He's in the business of beautifying what really matters. The soul. The inside. Jesus is working to make us beautiful where it counts. I read this week about some of the world's dirtiest people. There's Kailash Singh, a 66-year-old man who hasn't bathed in over 38 years. There's Tamar, a 65-year-old Armenian woman who hasn't bathed in over 30 years. There's Amu Haji, an 80-year-old Iranian man who hasn't bathed in over 60 years. What do all these folks have in common? We come up with a lot of things. Besides the fact they haven't bathed, and besides the fact that they reek, they all... Every one of them think they are fine. Despite their family and their friends and total strangers who have tried to come alongside and befriend them and help them and say, you know, you need a bath. They have, they have tried to help. They have tried everything. And these folks all say, I'm good. And there is an analogy in this for us because, you see, we can get comfortable in the filth of our own sin and we don't smell our own stench. It is God's grace that points out to us what we are, you know, we've gone nose blind and everything else blind to the sin in our life. And it's God's grace that says, hey, this is a problem. You need a bath here. The problem is so many of us, like these folks, say, I'm good, God. I'm fine. <laughs> it's God's grace looking to beautify us. And more than that, He says He's looking to make us, to beautify us, to purify for Himself a people. God wants us to, to make us a people for Himself. You know what that means? 
Let me ask you the question, what does God not own? There's nothing. God owns everything. So God isn't wanting to somehow own us because He already does. He owns everything. What it's talking about is in terms of relationship. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have, have everlasting life. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we end up in His family. We end up, as a matter of fact, the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. God desires a love relationship with us. Isn't that marvelous, by the way? All of us who've been rejected by everybody or anybody, the most desirable, most powerful, most awesome person in the universe loves you and wants a relationship with you. He wants to clean us up, but there's one more thing in that. It says, a people who are zealous for good works. In the process of purifying us, He's giving us a purpose. God's grace aims to make us a people whose lives matter, whose lives have significance. People who are eager to do good works, which if you recall in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says God has prepared in advance for us to do. Before... You were born before the universe was made. God knew you and knew and He created you to do good works. Uniquely, you, good works. In other words, God has created us for a purpose. And we don't want to miss out on that purpose. God is looking for folks who are zealous for good works, who are anxious to be what He has made us to be. That's what the purifying grace of God is doing, perfecting us, making us a people who are His own, who love Him, and who become what He's made us to be. God's grace is amazing. And if you're here this morning... You've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. God's grace is calling you to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him. And because in Jesus and only in Jesus will you find forgiveness from sin. Only in Jesus will you find peace with God. Only in Jesus will you find new life and eternal life. Brother, sister, fellow believer in Jesus, this passage here as we look at God's grace, calling us to focus on, to rivet our attention on the grace of God for us because that's what will transform us. It's not by trying harder to be better. It's as we look at what God has done for us in His grace, it will begin to change our view of ourselves, our view of the world. It will begin to change our view of God. It will begin to change our view of sin. It will transform us from the inside out. That's the message of this text. It is the grace of God that trains us. Marvelous stuff. Let's pray. Father, we needed this. We needed this because we tend to be folks who live like godless people. 
We, we pretend you don't exist. We put you on a shelf. We cut you out of our life and we just live life like it's all about us. And we end up miserable and we end up caught up in the uh, living again as slaves to sin and, and we get into ruts that are frustrating and damaging and dangerous and, and we end up feeling distant from you because we've lost sight of Your grace. Impress on us, Lord, Your grace. May we live in it. May we revel in it. May we be constantly reminded of it so that then we constantly are sharing it with others because there are folks who need to know Jesus. But they won't understand Your grace from us if we aren't living and reveling in Your grace in us. So Father, may that be what characterizes us here this morning. The grace of Jesus Christ in all we think, say, and do. So we ask in His name. Amen.